Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Today, we are diving into a story that may be cursorily familiar to many of our fellow listeners. You may have heard in the past the headlines of this story. You may have, you may have had, you know, a, a couple of, let's say, what do you think? A, a couple sentences length of an idea of what's happening. Uh, of course, in these chaotic times, uh, we have so many headlines, right? We have so many things that we all, we all keep track of. And many things, unfortunately, get lost in the shuffle. For decades, in Ciudad Juarez, in Mexico, women have been going missing. Uh, 
this is something that some of our fellow listeners wrote to us about in our earlier episode on the Lost Highway in Canada, where multiple uh, members of First Nations in the region were being victimized, uh, murdered, often without any acknowledgement or assistance from law enforcement. Also uh, referred to as the uh, the Highway of Tears, I believe, right? Isn't that yeah, another? That's, yeah. yeah, that's correct, Noel. And we are not diving into this case, this ongoing tragedy alone today. Today, we are joined by the Emmy and Peabody Award-winning producer and writer and executive producer of one of our newest pure podcasts, Forgotten, Women of Juarez. We'd like to welcome to the show, Oz Woloshin. Oz, thank you so much for coming on the air today. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, an honor to be having this conversation with you guys. We're very much glad that you're here to talk about this. And we're also glad that you're making this show that you're making. Uh, all, all three of us have been listening to the show again, forgotten women of war is you can find it right now. Um, I think we've all been personally very affected by the stories that you're telling and, um, that you're giving voice not only to, uh, you know, the families and the people who've been affected by this, but the reporters who've been working on this for so long. You know, before we jump into all of that, uh, could you just tell us who you are and why you wanted to talk about this story? Yeah, my name's Oz, and um, I've been I've been living in the states for ten years uh, on various different <laughs> immigrant visas, and now a green card. And uh, and so, you know, despite being a white man and and having all the privilege that comes with that. I've had this unusual experience of kind of uh, immigration difficulties and there's something called secondary screening where, you know, when you arrive in the United States, you get taken into this kind of prison-esque area in the airport and often have to wait for a couple of hours while various, you know, checks are performed. Um, And so, you know, despite fitting in and feeling very comfortable always in the United States, I've always also had this consciousness of like, what does it mean to be an immigrant in the US? What does it mean to live in the US without being from the US? Um, And that's also something which is part of my family background. My grandfather was a refugee from Ukraine to Britain after the Second World War. So I've always been very interested in stories about um, migration and stories about how we define us and them, stories about, you know, who gets to be part of the club and who gets excluded from the club, the price of being excluded from the club, which, you know, goes from lack of economic opportunity, unfortunately, to murder. Um, And so I was just very fascinated by this El Paso Juarez border area because you have these two big cities, El Paso, 600,000, Juarez, a million, in two different countries, separated by a, a river which is now dry and a steel fence. And El Paso, Texas, up until the terrible shooting at Walmart, was frequently considered one of America's safest cities of its size. And Juarez, as people know from movies like Sicario and you know other Narcos, uh, the Narcos Mexico, is one of the world's most dangerous and, and, and bloody and violent and frightening cities. So I was just curious, how does that happen? Why is that? And I first went down to the border to El Paso after I read a 
series of stories in the New Yorker called Faces from the Border. And one of the articles was was profiling Hispanic Border Patrol agents. And I'd never really considered that Border Patrol agents were majority Hispanic, in fact, 80% Hispanic. And so, you know, it was 2016, and there was all of this rhetoric coming out of the White House about Mexican bad hombres and rapists and, and an increasing militarization of the border. But what I found fascinating was the people on the front lines of enforcing it were themselves usually Hispanic, often with family in Juarez, often with cousins or even brothers and sisters who didn't speak to them anymore or turn them away from church or whatever it may be because of what they were doing. And yet it was a federal job and, and came with perks in an area with, you know, not as many employment opportunities, say, as New York or Los Angeles or Atlanta. So I was kind of fascinated by this paradox. Um, and I went down there to work on a documentary series about that, which hasn't hasn't yet been released. Um, but, uh, but but while I was there, one of the producers on the documentary series started telling me about this, this, this story of the murders of the women in Juarez. And I didn't know about it. I mean, it, it was something I, I, I couldn't believe. He was telling me there were not tens, but hundreds of women who had been murdered seemingly in a characteristic way, you know, left in strange positions with strange symbols in some cases left on their bodies that had been going on for decades, that various investigators had looked into it, but that no one knew for sure what was happening. And I thought, what a... What a, what a germane topic for a podcast, given people, people's interest in the true crime genre, but also what an interesting way to tell, a, to tell what is effectively a tale of two cities. Yeah, I, I, I massively appreciate the way you phrase it, a tale of two cities, and your reference to the August 2019 mass shooting there in El Paso, I believe that's when it occurred. One thing that I think will baffle a lot of people, and I want to make sure we don't bury the lead here, Oz, is... What you just said about the nature of these murders, because, you know, we we know that in various um, various countries in Central and South America, there is an ongoing crisis of femicide and violence against women. Uh, this was true even when I was living in Guatemala in the mid 2000s. But what's different here, one of the things that's different here is that there appears to be some sort of methodical system or application uh, to to these homicides. And, you know, the, it, it's something that I personally was, I, I was not aware of the extent of this. I knew that many women were being murdered and then later found. Uh, and I knew that there were allegations that the police uh, or law enforcement were somewhere on the spectrum between uh, incompetent to willfully uh, negligent. With that in mind, how did you and your co-host uh, first start exploring the the intersection of law enforcement here or I, I should say, uh, law enforcement's role. Were, was the uh, U.S. side of law enforcement interested or involved with any cases here? 
So that, that's a that's a very interesting question. And, and my co-host, um, who's not with us today, is uh, Monica Ortiz Uribe, who um, has been a reporter in El Paso for 15 years, reports for NPR, for the BBC, contributes to the New York Times. And, and she's been covering the femicides for 15 years um, with a very strong focus on the experience of the families, on the economic realities that make these women vulnerable in the first place and with less of a sort of procedural focus on law and order uh, on law enforcement on on the who more on the why and and the what so funny enough u.s law enforcement have been very interested in what's happening to the women in Juarez. Uh, I mentioned that that quote about the, the president talking about murderers rapists and bad hombres coming from Mexico and Central America into the US. In fact, the FBI in the 90s were very concerned that an American serial killer might be traveling south into Mexico to take advantage of a vulnerable vulnerable population and a a less strictly enforced uh, laws to basically prey on vulnerable women in Juarez. And in fact, Juarez has long been a, a place where things that America wants to have access to but not have responsibility for happen. So in the 20s, during Prohibition, there was a bourbon distillery in Kentucky that was disassembled part by part uh, and sent by rail to Juarez, where it was promptly reassembled, started making Kentucky bourbon again and smuggling it straight into the United States. And so the most famous bar in Juarez is called the Kentucky Club for that reason. Um, so, so, And then in the 60s, um, after this is a long way to answer your question, but in, in, in the Second World War, there was a lot of male labor was in Europe fighting. Uh, and so there was a shortage of, of farm labor and industrial labor in the United States. And the United States started this thing called the Bracero Program, where they would allow Mexican laborers to come into the United States easily, work, cross back and forth. And in the 60s, there was this political pressure to say, you know, these people are taking our jobs, let's send them back. So millions of Mexicans were, you know, basically sent home. And many of them found themselves in Juarez. And so there was both a concern of thinking, well, gosh, there are all these people on the border, you know, who are, who don't come from there, but who, who kind of may want to come back to the United States. H- how can we make things slightly more appealing for them to stay there? And so basically this duty-free zone begins in Juarez, where it's much, you know, you can assemble goods and re-export them to the US and only pay duty on the value added. And so Juarez becomes this manufacturing hub competing with Singapore and Taiwan at the time to create cheap consumer goods, which is still the engine of the economy there on behalf of American corporations, but using cheap Mexican labor with no labor protections. Um, So fast forward to the 90s and you have Robert Ressler, who was the man who invented the psychological profiling department at the FBI uh, on, and on whom the show Mindhunter is based. And he um, is one of the people credited with coining the term serial killer. And one of the things which he pioneered was data-driven 
serial killer apprehension. So looking for commonalities at crime scenes and using those commonalities to try and apprehend killers. And what he quickly, it was called the VICAP, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. And what he quickly realized was that if you didn't include southern Canada and northern Mexico in VICAP, you could be missing a great deal of what was happening. So Ressler was basically convinced that there were American serial, at least one American serial killer acting in Juarez. And so he went down there to try and learn more about the patterns behind the crimes to see if they connected to other crimes in the US. We'll return and dive deeper into the story of the women of Juarez after a word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. 
Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. And we're back. So this this timeline here, I, I, I think you've done a fantastic job of of filling in the context because so often in mainstream news reports, someone will, you know, with the best of intentions, read about something and not understand that there are decades of intervening forces and institutions leading to that news story that we read. This leads us to one of the other important pieces of context that I I think we need to establish here, Oz, which is that when you and Monica and your team are, when you were investigating this, when you are, when you were chasing this story, you were going to areas of Mexico and areas of the world that are, um, well, there's no way to say, there's no other way to say it. They are dangerous. Did you, did you ever feel that um, you or your cohort were, um, were in danger in the course of creating this? I mean, it's, it's in short. Yes. I mean, Juarez is, is, is a dangerous city, which has, you know, thousands of homicides a year, uh, most of which go unpunished. Mexico is the world's most dangerous country for journalists. I think there have been almost 30 journalists murdered uh, in the last 10 years there, more dangerous than Syria for journalists. And so there's one particular area in downtown Juarez where many of the women were last seen uh, called Mina Street, which is the central bus exchange in the city. So um, factory employees basically go from their houses in the outskirts, change downtown, take another bus to work. And that happens to be a part of town which is um, controlled closely by um, a gang called the Barrio Azteca. And so journalists are really not welcome there, but it's also how Monica describes it as ground zero for missing women. And if you walk around that area, you'll see missing posters on almost every lamppost. And you'll see these black crosses painted on pink squares, also on lampposts, which is where the logo uh, of our show, Forgotten, took its inspiration from. Um, And so we're walking around and Monica said on the way, look, we need a cover story because people don't want us to be asking questions about what happened to the women here. So we said, oh, we're, we're, we're reporting on the migrant caravan. And people did come up and ask us. And at a certain point, someone sort of made this gun gesture and shouted, pap, like that at us. And, you know, in most cities, you know, that might happen. It's a bit disconcerting or maybe somebody's having a bit of a joke. But in a place where you know that most crimes go unpunished and the price of life is, is very low... It is more scary. And we went after that to go and meet Sandra Rodriguez Nieto, who's the editor of uh, one of the editors of the local newspaper. And she said, yeah, that place where you guys were, I don't let my reporters go there. It's too dangerous. And her colleague, uh, the desk outside her office was empty and had been for 10 years since her colleague Armando Rodriguez was assassinated while he was taking his daughter to school. So I don't want to overplay the, the state danger that we felt ourselves in person. I think Monica living in the area takes more risk than I did, who can return to New York City. 
but certainly being on the ground in Juarez is 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 not uh, a comfortable experience if you're asking these kinds of questions. Well, well, um, you know, I I think we just have a at least right here in the rooms. Uh, the the people who you're speaking to right now have a great respect uh, for you and and especially I think for Monica and for Diana, um, uh, Diana Washington Valdez. So I want to give our listeners the way you do in your show a specific example of what the experience uh, living and working in Juarez at one of these factories was like, and uh, maybe the vulnerability that existed uh, for within the lives of a lot of these women simply because of transportation needs, um, which, you know, does speak to a larger economic issue. So, uh, in, in the show, in episode one, you talk about, uh, Sagrario. Can, can you tell us a little bit about her life, what it was like and what, um, she was doing when she went missing? Yes, by all means. So, Ben, you mentioned historical context. The factory started in Juarez in the in the sixties, but it was in the mid nineties after NAFTA was signed that they really boomed, and you had just this tremendous demand for labour. And a bit like during the the Grapes of Wrath time, there were recruiters going into the interior and saying, "Come to Juarez, going to be fantastic." There are even reports of empty seven four sevens flying to rural uh, and mining states in Mexico and coming back full of workers. So there was this sense that Juarez um, was a, a place of opportunity, a place for, particularly for women to work outside of the home, which wasn't always the case in some other parts of Mexico. And so this one family, the Flores family, uh, in 1995, they decided to move from El Salto in Durango, where Jesus, the father, was uh, a, a lumberjack. And he went ahead with their son and he wrote a letter home to Paola, his wife, and their six daughters and said, you guys are going to come. We found work. We found what we're looking for. It's going to be fantastic. And Paola replied, well, I've heard they kill women there and we have six daughters. Are you sure? And Jesus said, yes, there's no, there's no bad people here. Everyone's starting out. Come and join us. So they did. So they, they moved there. The, the, the mother and the six daughters, including Sagrario, joined. And they moved to this squatter community on the outskirts of Juarez, where they had to build their own house above their heads. No running water, no electricity. And to build their house, they foraged scrap from an American dump on the other side of the border. And just this image of, of, of these, you know, people who moved from elsewhere crossing over under with a kind of wink and a nod from border patrol to go and get our trash to go back and build their houses you know is is very haunting there's one story about sagrario being there at the dump with her mother and an american man coming to throw some stuff away and seeing that she's cold and offering him his coat and sagrario says no i I can't take it i'm embarrassed and her mother says take the coat so she does so Anyway, they, they, they find what they're looking for. They, they find work, and they're all working together in a maculadora, making, I think, refrigerator parts in one of these factories. But Sagrario is under 18, and the factory find out, and they say, you can't work the night shift with the rest of your family. We need you to do the day shift. So she has to start traveling to work alone all of a sudden. And her mother begs her. She says, look, we can survive without the money you bring in, please don't do this. And Sigurio says, look how we're living, I need, I need to help. And 
Within two months of her shift changing, she's disappeared and is found dead in the desert two weeks later with all of the characteristics of the abduction in broad daylight, the disappearance and certain types of trauma that are characteristic of of tens, if not hundreds, of other young women who meet the same fate. I want to bring up just the idea of a border town in Juarez in particular. Um, the cartels, the drug cartels in Juarez had been particularly powerful in the 90s. And I think they're maybe a little less so now, but a lot of the stories we would hear about Juarez were uh, cartel war murders. And can, can you speak a little bit about that kind of proximity to the United States and the relationship between the drug trade and your story, uh, if if any exists, and just kind of, you know, what you took away from that? Yeah, by all means. So, I mean, the same reasons why the factories want to be in Juarez is why the drug traffickers want to be in the in Juarez. It's, it's very close to the U.S. You have millions of people crossing the border north, millions of vehicles, tons of freight. And so it's it's one of the most lucrative drug smuggling corridors in the world. And so what happened was in the in the 90s, up until the 90s, um, there was obviously organized crime in Mexico, but the cartel was a relatively stable organization, a bit like um, the mafia. And so although there was organized crime, there wasn't a huge amount of violence against members of the community. Like once you were under the protection of the cartel, you were basically safe. But what happened was the cartel started splintering, actually under pressure from the US who were doing various, um, you know, raids and arrests and putting pressure on the Mexican government. And when the cartel splintered, basically a cartel civil war started. And this was slightly later in the 90s. This was the early 2000s. Um, and what happened is El Chapo's Sinaloa cartel were coming in from the West because they wanted to take over the Juarez smuggling corridor from the local from the local cartel. And so this began this that, that's why you see these terrible images of Juarez of, you know, men hanging from bridges and with slogans written on their dead bodies and wearing pig masks. I mean, it was really the most disgusting and symbolic violence um, playing out in Juarez in a battle for control, which actually I think probably you can draw a line forward from that to ISIS and how they weaponize the imagery of violence um, to you know, to be part of their very effective social media campaign. And so this this issue of the women being murdered and the cartel in Juarez, um, it, it's, it's one of the questions of the podcast. It's another reason why the FBI t- tried to get involved to find out what the answers are. But... In the early 90s or the mid-90s and the early 2000s, in a sense, it's not clear at that stage just how entrenched the cartel is. So everyone's on the hunt for a serial killer. Uh, And then as the podcast goes on and as history moves forward, it becomes clear that it's harder and harder to separate the murders of women from the cancer of cartel violence spreading. Hmm. Yeah, and that's something that has... I think historically bedeviled uh, multiple cities in Mexico as well as other countries in South America. And, you know, a couple of times, a couple of times here, Oz, already we've used the phrase serial killer. And, you know, for everyone 
everyone familiar with that. There are some nuts and bolts technicalities, but long story short, a serial killer is defined by uh, having a type of victim, having a method of murder, and having a a pattern in terms of you know their timeline, their chronology. One thing that one thing that I think stood out to us here uh, that that differentiates these these specific homicides from so many other tragic homicides in the in the area is that there did seem to be there does seem to be a a fairly consistent method applied here, right? There are people who are perhaps uh, being shot due to uh, crime or due to, you know, or, or being stabbed in a fight. Uh, but these these are different. Um, one thing that stood out to me is early on in the story, um, you're, you, you explore how one of the victims seemed to have been uh, kept alive for some time after being abducted, uh, I believe. I believe investigators were able to verify that this victim appeared to have been fed, so they were around long enough to be fed. And then you explore a little bit about you explore the the method of um, possibly finding or or you know um, determining these victims and choosing them. It seems like. Uh, I think one of the most disturbing things is how premeditated, dare I say, how organized it seems. Could could you tell us a little bit about what appears to be this this method of determination? Yeah, I think you picked up on something which um, which was important for us to communicate in the podcast. Um, the reporter who's done the most work on this story is called Diana Washington Valdez, and she wrote a book called The Killing Field, Harvest of Women. And her big point was, these are not random victims. These are not victims of random violence in a violent place. These are women who have been specifically selected for certain characteristics, young, poor, from immigrant families, often migrant families, who disappear usually during the day to and from work, and who, when they're discovered later, either their body left alone or, in four cases in Juarez, there have been mass graves of women discovered, bear characteristic types of trauma, often a broken neck, often hands bound by shoelaces. Uh, and in this particular case of Lily Alejandra, you mentioned uh, an autopsy that revealed She'd been kept alive and fed for several days between disappearing and being murdered. And so this is, this is, there's clearly something going on here. This is not random violence. Um, and that's why uh, there were so many people like Ressler from the FBI theorizing there must be a serial killer because there's a type, there's a method of selection. Uh, and one of the most chilling methods of selection was this, uh, according to Diana's reporting, computer school in downtown Juarez called Echo. And again, this is the early 2000s. These are women who have come with their families in search of opportunity to a new city. And there's a computer school which apparently offers the type of skills that are needed to participate in the new economy and perhaps get a better job than a factory job. And uh, in Daya's reporting, I think at least 10 victims um, were 
registered at the computer school before they were taken and murdered. And uh, the suspicion is that this computer school was basically a catalogue of victims, in Diana's phrase, for somebody on the other end who wanted to know, okay, I want a picture of the woman, I want to know where they live, I want to know who their family are, and then using that to select the most vulnerable because these crimes were also sexually motivated for murder. Wow. And in episode two of the show, and and we don't want to, you know, obviously give away too much. We want to talk about this, but we don't want, we want you to go listen to the show. Um, Yes, please. (laughs) in, in, In episode two, there are witnesses who have seen things. In a lot of these cases, it appears that there are witnesses to seeing something. Because like we said, this is broad daylight. You're in a, a, you know, a large metropolitan area where these kidnappings are occurring, or even if it's on the edges of them. Um, it seems like there would be more people talking, but it also seems like there is a very real danger for these witnesses. Because, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe it was known that someone or some group were uh, posing as agents from the FBI and seeking answers from witnesses or getting intel from witnesses. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, you're right. So, so, so the women often disappear at these moments of maximum vulnerability. So in Sagrario Flores's case, it was right after she, she changed shift and was traveling alone to and from work. There's another young woman called Claudia Yvette Gonzalez who arrives for work late, and so she isn't allowed into the factory. And that very day she disappears and is later found dead. So there's this sense that somebody is, is watching and somebody is, is, is taking note of vulnerability. But the peculiar thing is then there are never any witnesses. But then in 2001, this case comes along and uh, there aren't witnesses to the abduction, but witnesses see Lily Alejandra struggling in a car with a man a few days after she's taken. And so this is also a break because they identify the car. It's a Ford Thunderbird. It's a relatively common make of car, but it's the beginning of the kind of lead that might normally you know, resolve these types of cases. Um, The witnesses, uh, Dinah Washington-Valdez goes to interview them and they say, oh gosh, how funny, you are not the first person who's been here to ask us questions. The FBI were here as well. And Dinah says, what? She says, yeah, the FBI FBI came and they came to ask us what we'd seen and and what we knew and so we gave them all the information. Dinah calls her sources in in the FBI in El Paso and they never did that. So somebody has come to lead their own parallel investigation, either to find out what these witnesses know or to intimidate them and to make sure that the information they have doesn't make it into the right channels. So that, that's one of the, the big challenges of this story and why so many people have approached it and, and struggled to get to answers because unlike a normal crime in the US, people are often scared for good reason to come forward and share what they know. And I bring this up, Oz, because you you spoke with at least one FBI agent that I've heard on the podcast, uh, Hardrick Crawford Jr., right. who who was, I believe, the FBI uh, special agent in charge of El Paso uh, in around that 2001 time and a, a little exactly. bit after. And, you know, he he says some some things in the show that 
uh, at least that I've heard thus far, that are really disturbing, specifically talking about how easy it is to kill someone and bury them and hide a body in Juarez and the surrounding areas. But, you know, just listening to him talk about uh, these murders and what's happening and knowing that the FBI is involved and does does breach across the border there uh, for a lot of different cases. But in this one in particular, they, they were at least doing some work on it. I guess my big question to you is, uh, how much of a hand did the FBI have in investigations here? Uh, if it, I mean, we know they had some, but how large of a role did the FBI play? Well, there are actually three attempts the FBI made to involve themselves in solving these crimes. The first time was in the mid-90s when Robert Ressler, the serial killer expert, came down. And he came motivated in large part by wanting to get more data for his VICAP, Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. He came because he wanted to do a better job of solving crimes in the US. Then you had Frank Evans, who ran an operation called Operation Plaza Sweep in the late 90s. That was a full-on FBI operation in Mexico to exhume bodies, male bodies from the desert surrounding Juarez, believed to be American citizens, in order to secure an indictment against the cartel leader, uh, Carrillo Fuentes, uh, in order to get an extradition request, which they were successful in doing. Evans said at that point, we offered the local Juarez police assistance with solving the murders of women. But he was very explicit in saying that the FBI made that offer because they wanted to test out how trustworthy the local police were. And it turned out they weren't. Uh, Then you have Hardrick Crawford, who comes along in the early 2000s. And unlike Ressler and Evans, who had a clear uh, United States interest, motivated reason to engage themselves in this case, Hardrick says, I had a mission from God. I had a higher calling than the US Constitution. I have my own daughters. It was my moral duty to find out what was happening to these women. And his story is one of the most interesting uh, plot lines in the podcast. We we come to it later on. Um, but safe to say when law enforcement officials start to follow something that they view as being higher than the Constitution, chaos sometimes ensues. Okay, we're going to talk more with Oz, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25. each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. All right, and we're back with Oswaloshan of Forgotten Women of Juarez. Back to a specific point about the story, and this is all, none of this is spoiler territory. It's all covered pretty quickly in the first episode. But I think it's fascinating how little was known at the time about the cartel's kind of, oh gosh, trademark, I guess, or signature for a lot of this violence that we maybe now take for granted. But some of the methods of of the killings and some of the kind of calling cards really did have almost an occulted kind of, you know, feel about them or some sort of ritualistic, um, you know, qualities. Can you speak to that a little bit about about how that in particular maybe muddied the waters and, and made it, you know, be a big part of that search for a serial killer as opposed to realizing perhaps that this might be something else? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, bear in mind, you know, these crimes in the 90s, this is not long after the satanic panic uh, in the US. And so, you know, I think there's a tendency in any case to read on to unsolved murders and and horrific murders, some kind of satanic or ritual element. Um, But in fact, in the case of these murders, um, it, it does seem like uh, they were ritualized. Um, there were strange marks left on the bodies of the victims. There was this use of shoelaces 
to bind the wrists. And the way in which the women's bodies were left was not random. They were arranged uh, in certain dehumanizing ways. And so one of the early hypotheses was indeed that there was some kind of satanic or or ritual cult um, killing these women. And um, one of the phenomena in in, in Mexico has been the rise of this interest in uh, Santa Muerte, the Holy Death, which is a um, sort of religion-esque, which sort of worships death. And people were wondering, you know, is it possible these are human sacrifices? Um, That most of our sources dismissed fairly quickly. But the idea of ritual killings, uh, ritual killings for the purposes of hazing or bonding or creating loyalty or creating codes of silence, that was considered to be a much more realistic avenue of investigation. And in fact, when Ressler was there from the FBI, he was there with another forensic criminologist called Candice Skrapek. And they came on one of these crime scenes with this woman left in an utterly dehumanizing way. And she turned to Ressler and said, have you ever seen anything like this in your career? And he said, no. And what they started to speculate was that, was that these women were being sacrificed by some kind of group uh, in order to achieve purposes which at the time weren't clear. Because there, there were things like markings, triangles, and various symbols carved into the bodies that have this, you know, feel of some sort of ritual or some sort of blood sacrifice or, or, or what have you. And again, don't want to get into spoiler territories about the story, but when did it become clear that it was something different? Or at least when, you know, in, in your coverage of the story, in your following these folks that have lived this uh, literally on the ground and in research and reporting for years, when did it become clear? to you that what was really going on or or that maybe that was barking up the wrong tree a little bit well so i think it's the mass graves that really clarify for people what's going on because you know young women are going missing apparently following a pattern being found in the desert uh on the outskirts of juarez with characteristic trauma but 1995 1996 2001 and 2012 these mass graves of women who have been killed in the same way are discovered. And at that point, it becomes impossible for anybody to argue that these crimes are connected. These are not victims of random violence. And each of these times, there's been a great hope that, okay, the authorities have to acknowledge there's something going on here which is connected. Uh, And a belief in the community that although this is terrible, we must have hit rock bottom. After this no more. This can't continue. We will find the real culprits. And indeed, after each of the mass graves were discovered, somebody took the fall. In 1995, it was an Egyptian chemist called Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif, who had self-deported from the United States under threat of being actually deported to Egypt, and had decided to go and live in Juarez, where he could continue working for his US employer but not be subject to the US law. And so he was a big partier in downtown Juarez, and he had these rape charges against him in the US. When the first mass grave of women is discovered, he's taken in and declared as the serial killer. There's one problem. In 1996, another mass grave of women is discovered. So as briefly, a bit of a concern for the authorities, well, how do we explain this? And what they come up with is that a gang called the Rebels is being paid by Sharif to murder women on his behalf 
uh, in order to attest his innocence and that he's demanding their underwear as evidence uh, in, from his jail cell. This sounds pretty preposterous and lurid, but I mean, this was the official line. 2001 comes along, another mass grave is discovered. A, a, a journalist asked the attorney general at a press conference, is it possible Sharif is behind these crimes as well? And the attorney general says, it's something we're looking into. That's not the line they end up going with. Uh, in fact, two bus drivers uh, uh, take the fall this time. Uh, it turns out they've been tortured with cattle prods, uh, suffocation, beatings uh, into confessing to the crimes. And it's actually this scapegoating, this third scapegoating, that um, sets off this process where a lawyer takes on their case uh, and through his investigation, we start to get some answers about what's really happening. But it leaves another trail of death in its wake and, and not just of women, of men as well. And while we are on the subject of mass graves, one very important and I think profoundly disturbing thing here is if we do not ultimately know the group or the people responsible for these murders, and we do not ultimately know their motive, then it means that we also do not ultimately know uh, how many victims exist. And the the pattern that you're describing of finding mass graves and then, you know, this rush to find some, I, I hesitate to say necessarily, scapegoat because Abdul Latif Sharif was, was a horrible person, like, clearly a horrible person. Um, but there's there's this pattern on law enforcement's part of, okay, we found a grave. Let's, let's find a way to explain it. Oh, we found another grave. Let's find a way to explain it. And what I think is, you know, most troubling here and something that I, I, I feel obligated to ask you about is, is it possible that there are more mass grave sites out there that have yet to be discovered? I mean, is that is that like within the realm of probability? Is it within the realm of plausibility? Or where where does this leave us? I mean, to, to the early part of your question about culpability, actually, we there is a witness to these murders who tells an American journalist called Alfredo Corchado. Uh, what he's seen, why these women are being killed. And so we do get to that reveal in the podcast, and that kind of sets off the second half of the podcast. Um, so, so there are some answers, but they're not answers which the officials ever take seriously in Juarez. And so your question is a very good one. Are there more mass graves in the desert? Very likely, yes. Uh, certainly many, many more bodies that were never found. Um, one of the most interesting things with for me about this reporting slightly adjacent to the to the story in 2001 after the mass grave is discovered uh, the authorities fail to identify the victims before they declare the case is closed and so the families never have closure they never really believe okay was this my daughter was this not my daughter sagrario flores who we mentioned she gets exhumed three times because there's no clarity ever for the family on whether it's her. Once the grave next to her is incorrectly exhumed and a man's body is brought in for analysis. I mean, this is a level of either incompetence or corruption, which is quite, 
quite staggering. So a team called the Argentine Forensic Anthropology Team come in 2001 at the request of various activists. They have experience in identifying bodies from the end of the regime in Argentina when there were many mass graves and many families looking for answers. And and, and this woman, Mercedes Doretti, who's a MacArthur Genius Grant holder, basically founded this team of anthropologists to identify bodies. They go to Juarez in 2001 to try and finally, using DNA techniques, answer who these eight women definitively in this grave are. And as part of their work, they start analyzing other bodies. And what Mercedes Doretti told me was, this is the first time in her career that she would analyze bodies and there would be no matches from the local area of people who had missing persons in their family. So she had to, in the end, often the, 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 the missing person would be found in Juarez, the body would be found in Juarez, but the family would be 800 miles away because the person was a migrant. And of course, in the early 2000s in Juarez, this was, this was the first time she'd ever seen that in her career. And now it's common. There are bodies all along the US-Mexico border from Central America, belonging to people from Central America, other places in the world, whose, whose family may be thousands of miles away. But this, uh, the, the technique of identifying bodies and matching them to people a long way away began in Juarez because there was so much migrant labor into the factory jobs. And, and so that really has foreshadowed what's happening now on the border with all of these you know, tragic deaths and families who don't get closure who may live thousands of miles away. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about the lives of these women. Uh, a lot of it is a gruesome end that their lives met, but this show I think is pretty firmly set on the, the, the life lived by these women and, and what they were going to, to survive for themselves and their families. And in, in an early episode in the show, there's a moment where I believe it's Sagraria's mother is talking about when her daughter came home excited to tell her mom that the company has taken out life insurance on her. And if anything happens to her, the family, you mom will, will get money. The family will get a lot of money if something happens to me. And uh, you know, she's she and her father and her other siblings are all working in this factory and they're living in this small town where their home was, you know, originally built by the trash, like you said, from across the border. Um, and I believe it is five family members working in, in this factory at that point. Just imagining that five of your family members could be working at a factory and you can still barely afford to live uh, while you're making goods that are going to be shipped across the border. It's a tough thing for me personally to to understand because of my privileged life that I live here in the United States and because of who I am and what I look like. I wonder if these families have, you know, they obviously haven't been able to find full closure because of everything you just talked about, Oz. But I wonder if they're being taken care of in any way by these companies that, you know, maybe a lot of these victims were um, a part of or by some other groups. Like, what are, what, are their, what are their lives like now, the families who have had such loss in their lives? Uh, I'm sorry to say that they're difficult. They're very difficult. Um, uh, often 
the, the, often the mothers become tireless advocates for for justice. Uh, there's an amazing energy and passion in the protest movement in Juarez, led by mothers, and 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 indeed, you know, those, those demands for justice, uh, although they haven't always answered individual questions, there is some sense of the power of collective action and 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 conditions in 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 the factories and in those communities have improved under pressure from the mothers. Um, Paula Flores, Sagrario's mother, founded a kindergarten in their neighborhood so that the local children could get more of an education. It's called the Sagrario Flores Kindergarten. And so she told us, it makes me happy that every child in the neighborhood graduates with my daughter's name on their diploma. And it's tempting to find a lot of solace in, you know, the individual struggle against their circumstances. But the reality is the conditions are very poor there still. Um, these factories, which manufacture goods that we all use, continue to pay people less than $10 a day when a similar job on the two miles away on the other side of the border would bring in 8 to $10 an hour. And that in itself creates the conditions of vulnerability and violence. And in fact, during the COVID crisis, the American ambassador put great pressure on Mexico not to close the factories, the maquiladoras, because they're creating things like blood, blood pressure cuffs and medical gloves and supplies we needed to keep our citizens safe during COVID. And of course, there were outbreaks and deaths uh, which ravaged these factories, but the workers were being told they have to keep coming to work. And so people often say, are, are the murders still going? And the answer is, well, you know, the last mass grave of women was discovered in 2012, which is eight years ago. But the the people who work in these factories remain very vulnerable and the conditions haven't improved very much. And in fact, there's a second generation of women who were born in Juarez and who are perhaps more politically conscious than their parents were. There's one protest group called the Daughters of the Maquila Workers. Uh, and one of the young women who was part of that protest group and a local artist called Isabel Cabanez de la Torre she was cycling through downtown Juarez uh, in January 2020 and she was shot in the head and her, her, her murder is unsolved. And so this place of vulnerability and gender violence and, you know, a, a locus really of rapacious consumption. I mean, refrigerator parts, steering wheels, you know, medical gloves, they're manufactured in Juarez. And of course, it's where cocaine and other drugs come through. So unfortunately, our consumption habits have a price and often it's thousands of miles away but what what makes Juarez so arresting as a place is that you can see it from the United States you can see the consequences of uh certain choices we make playing out within sight of where you stand and and that's really coming back to the beginning of your question about why I got interested in this story I think it's a place where you can understand the consequences of of institutions and choices and, and borders in a very, 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 very immediate way. No, it's a, it's a really, really good point um, because we, people think about, oh, if I choose to do cocaine, that's a personal choice. If I choose to con you know, contribute to capitalism, that's a personal choice and that's not affecting anybody but me. It's, it's something that I'm doing. But no, it, it, it shows there are ripple effects to the choices that we make. And this is part of that. And I think you do a fantastic job of, I mean, it's not like a very, it's not a political show, but it is a show about experience and about the lives of the folks that are caught up in these systems. And I think that's what makes it all the more powerful. 
Yeah, definitely. But but I also, I mean, there's there's a big you know ethical consumerism movement in in the U.S. and I think that's very valuable and important. But really, these are like systems and policy problems, not individual choice problems. I mean, of course, we can all be more ethical in our actions, but but a lot of the responsibility for you know cartel violence, the drug problems in 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 Latin America working conditions in Juarez, they come from very conscious policy decisions. And one of them, interesting, we, we had a very interesting interview with a historian called Oscar Martinez, who said in the 60s, um, you know, these, there were factories in Singapore and Taiwan doing the same thing, which happens in Juarez. But the wage increases in those places have, have been multiples. In Juarez, they say, say the same. Why is that? Well, it's because Mexico is close to the United States. So the United States can enforce intellectual property and patent infringements much more effectively. And so the wealth creation of, you know, basically what we always get angry for China of doing, of basically manufacturing and then copying the IP, that never happened in Mexico. So there's this kind of poverty trap which comes with proximity, which is very interesting as well. Yeah. And this is, I, I mean, at this point, we're also talking about um, the the power of systems, right? The power of institutions, Um which, which affect us profoundly. Um, one, one thing that I don't want to lose in our conversation here is the, the concept of the news cycle. To uh, Matt, I believe earlier you had asked a question um, at some point about what happens to these uh, to the survivors right the people left behind after these unspeakable tragedies which i don't think it's hyperbolic to call them that uh, af- after these tragedies uh, what happens to the people who are still living their lives you know after the news crew and the and the cameras cut and the van drives away to the next story that's that's something that i think is um is profound and and uh is tremendously important us because we're talking a lot about things that have developed in the 1990s in the early 2000s um right now as as um as I'm sure you're aware, many of our listeners may not be aware, uh, Juarez, murders in Juarez just overall are up 42% in March over May. Uh, without, you know, I know we're interviewing you in the, in the midst of uh, forgotten women of Juarez coming out and coming to the public eye, but could, or the public ear, I should say, I guess. But, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the the current state of war as 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 applied to homicides, uh, as applied to this case? I mean, what what happened after all of the investigations over the nineties and the two thousands? Well, so when Monica began reporting in Juarez, she grew up in El Paso, but she began reporting in Juarez on the drug war in two thousand eight. Uh, and this was that period when the Sinaloa cartel were trying to move in on Juarez and there was basically a civil war and people were being butchered and, and, and left in the most disgusting ways. Um, and it was in that context that Monica cut her teeth as a reporter in, in Juarez. And the reporter who introduced me to Monica is called Angela Cochega. 
And she told me very casually she would drive over the border to do a day of reporting, come back to the US, arrive at Starbucks, take off her shoes and abandon them because they were so soaked in blood. And this idea of a war zone in your backyard is just very, very hard to get your head around. So 2008, 2011, the drug violence was at its absolute height and homicides were, you know, in the three and a half thousand a year, you know, area. After 2011, things got a bit quieter. In 2016, there was uh, the Juarez Tourist Board were trying to sort of encourage travel to Juarez again, because it was historically a place where Americans, much like Havana in Cuba, went to go and have fun, to go and drink and drink when they're underage and, you know, gamble and maybe, you know, all, all things which are worse than that as well, the sex trade. Um, but but Juarez was kind of rebuilding its reputation and, 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 and its sort of tourism industry in 2015, 2016. Unfortunately, the homicide rate is is starting to approach, the, you know, the 3,000 number again, based on monthly averages of 250 people being murdered now. And that's really, really frightening because uh, it basically indicates that it's happening again. Why it's happening is not clear, but but generally when there, were, when there are power shifts in the cartels, for example, 2016 or 2017, El Chapo gets extradited to the US and is now in ADX uh, Florence Supermax in Colorado. He was the most powerful cartel leader in Mexico, and now he's gone. And similar to what happened after the Iraq war with the formation of ISIS or when you, when you disturb the leadership of these organizations, um, it comes with splinter groups and splinter groups bring violence. And I think right now there is a, there is a civil war in Juarez, which it doesn't have the same spectacular violence as the 2008, 2011 period, but the numbers are, are, are approaching the same height. And, and that's bad news for all vulnerable people. Uh, Monica said that the last mass grave was discovered in 2012, and she would not be surprised if, if another one was discovered soon. And this is, the again, as you said, Odds, this is the modern day. We are recording this episode. For a peek behind the curtain here, folks, we're recording this episode on June 12th, 2020. Oz, at this point... Uh, I believe that the best way for our listeners to understand more of this story, to learn more about it, is to honestly to stop our podcast right now and to head over to whatever their podcast platform of choice is and check out Forgotten Women of Juarez, which is available now. We want to thank you profoundly for being so generous with your time. Uh, on our show here, but more importantly, much more importantly, uh, for the time that you and Monica have dedicated to bringing to shedding light on this, because it's, um, I am attempting not to be emotional about this, but it is, it, it is reprehensible that these that this is this is occurring as you said you know at the very beginning you said a tale of two cities it, it, it's it's offensive that this sort of mass homicide continued that it continues today that it seems like the systems that were created to vouchsafe people are broken have failed and and 
on my end, I'm wondering what would you, if you would recommend next steps, if you, if you would, um, if you, for instance, were able to uh, dictate to law enforcement in the community uh, what they should be doing about this, about this ongoing horrific activity, what, what would you say? Well, firstly, thanks for your kind words about our time. And I would like to emphasize, you know, my role in, in Forgotten was to come in as the naive outsider and ask you know, framing questions and frankly obvious questions, you know, why is this happening? What's going on? And and Monica is the person who's devoted years of her life and her career and, and taken risks that I haven't, as our other sources did, in particular Dinah Washington Valdez. And so what what makes me proudest about this project is to have used it as a as a frame for their stories and their reporting to to reach a wide audience, and so that that's been that that's been you know something I'm personally proud of. Um, but to your second question about what what can we do, I mean, there was an American journalist who went to Juarez in the '90s called Chuck Bowden, who called Juarez a laboratory of our future, and he basically taking the women's murders as a starting point said, well, what happens when you basically create a permanent underclass. What happens when law enforcement aren't trusted by the community? What happens when there's state-sponsored violence uh, against people who seek the truth? What happens when journalists gets murdered? What happens when the imperatives of profit are put above the imperatives of, of, of human life? And that's not a conversation which is unique to Juarez anymore. That's a conversation we're having right now at the United States. And... And Sandra Rodriguez Nieto, one of the editors at El Diario and Juarez, said, Juarez wasn't always like this. Like, it's always been a tough city. It's always been a gritty border city. But thousands of unsolved murders every year. You know, institutions are fragile. And and, and, and be careful in the U.S. Be, be careful. Don't fall asleep because it can happen faster than you think. And so, you know, I, I don't want to overemphasize the connection of this podcast to what's happening with the protest movement in the United States right now. But when you have injustice, ongoing injustice, when you have lack of trust between law enforcement and citizens, and when you have attacks on independent judiciary and the media, you can find yourself in a pretty hellish situation pretty quickly. Thank you for that, Oz. And thank you, thank you for making the show with these amazing women who have been working on this story for so long. Um, just prepare yourself when you're listening to the show because, because they, they are tragic stories, but they are very important to, uh, to hear. Agreed. 100%. This concludes today's episode, but this does not conclude our show and it does not conclude the story of the podcast, Forgotten Women of Juarez. We want to hear from you. We want your perspective. As we often say, you are the most important part of this show, specifically you. So write to us. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. We're frankly, like many people, in too many places on the internet nowadays. Uh, But before you do any of that, 
check out this podcast. It's available now wherever you find your favorite shows, as we say. It's free to listen to. And this is an important story that is has not and is not um, receiving the attention and the analysis it deserves. And while you are listening to that, if you have any thoughts, if you have feedback, you want to talk to us, but you hate social media, we of all people get it. You can, uh, you can contact us a number of other ways. We have a phone number. Yes, you can give us a call at one eight three three stdwytk where you can leave messages for us in audio form in three-minute increments. I know, it's not ideal, but hey, if you need more time than that, you just call back, and then we'll stitch them together for when we inevitably do another listener mail episode uh, where we field questions from you. Um, you also might be one of the lucky ones that gets a true uh, callback from Matt Frederick himself. Uh, I, I also would like to start being a little more conscientious about participating in that too, but man, that talk about the golden ticket of, uh, of conspiracy uh, listener mails that when you get that call from Matt. I, I really wish you all the best of luck because you will definitely do it. If you don't want to do any of that stuff, we still have one of those old-fashioned emails. You can email us. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.
Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. 